from justice and the gospel. And the reason that we're doing it, this, this, this teaching is a part of a series called Hijacks, where essential doctrines are truths of the Christian gospel have been hijacked or taken real liberal to be a real liberal, left-leaning thing that Bible Christians don't really have anything to do with it. But in fact, justice is ours. And so we're reclaiming it. We're defining it not by how society defines it, but we're defining it by how the Bible defines justice. And so um, we're doing that so it can be fruitful in your own life. So we don't have to depend upon the news and talk show hosts to give us our definition on how we ought to see justice, but a lot of scripture and God's words. So that's why we're doing this series, Hijack, and the topic is justice, and today's justice and the gospel. And if you were, okay, let's just go to prayer and we'll just keep going. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity, God, to just study your word, Lord. God, it is my prayer, Lord, that you just set the hearts of my brothers and sisters on fire, God, as you've done in me these past couple of weeks. Lord, God, help me to just see justice in the gospel, God. I pray that you do this work in my brothers and sisters as well, God. Oh, Lord, that we may be just more equipped, more excited to just live for you, God, to know you in this way, Lord. God, we know you love justice, and we want to do the things that you love, Lord. So we thank you for your truths, God. Speak to us today, Lord. This is our hope. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I hope that one of the things that you took away, if you were here the last time we spoke, I hope that one of the things that you took away from our discussion on justice is that justice is not just this rigid, legalistic term of that deals with like proper sentencing, but justice helps us to accomplish the second great commandment, which is to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love like Jesus. So I hope that that's one of the major takeaways. I know it's a brother that came up to me, and he said that. He, he was saying, wow, I never looked at justice from that lens. He looked at it from the more punitive, re retributive aspect of it, and he never seen justice from the lens of love. And so I pray that's also a takeaway that you took as well, that justice is not just this legalistic term, but it's it's a term that helps us to accomplish the second greatest commandment, which is to love our neighbors as ourselves, or to love like Jesus. And the two terms that we looked at, the two Hebrew words for justice was mishpat and tzedakah. Now I noticed that, I think I, when I was using the uh, the other Hebrew word, tzedakah, I was saying tzedakah, I was putting too much emphasis on the T, but I realized that the T is kind of silent. And so Hebrew is tzedakah. And so those are two terms we looked at in Hebrew, Mishpat and Sadaka. And so uh, just to kind of bring everybody up to speed, Mishpat could be loosely defined um, as the justice in the form of legal terms, the way that we would probably naturally understand it. In the courts, you know, not to show partiality to, to different groups, meaning that if you had a, a white offender that offended, you would treat him the same way that you would treat a black offender or a Mexican offender. And the same punishment would be given out across the board. There would be no partiality. That's mishpat. That's a legal form of justice that we looked at. Mishpat also means that a person is receiving their due. Their due, whether they are a victim or an offender, they're receiving their just 
Jew, that's Mishpah. And one of the uh, things that we looked at last time was that when it came to the justice that was given to the widow, the poor, the orphan, the immigrant, that justice was often lacking. They were not given their due. Some call that the quartet of the vulnerable, the, the uh, immigrant, the orphan, the widow, and the stranger. I think I said that was well twice. But they were called, they were called the quartet of the vulnerable because as you study the Old Testament scripture, you see that God constantly brings up this group. God is constantly being protective over this group. Why? Because they are the ones whose rights, whose justice is normally not uh, being upheld. And so because of that, God put laws in Israel. He put laws in place in Israel to make sure that those people in that vulnerable group would get their due, that society would not easily forget them. So we installed laws, uh, Sadaka laws, that would make sure that that group, that people would look, that their needs were still being met. And the fact that Jesus tells us in the New Testament that the poor will be with us always tells me that there will always be marginalized groups or disenfranchised groups and people in our society. And because there will always be those groups that society overlooks, there will always be people that society overlooks, we have a responsibility to be advocates on their behalf. I.e. Proverbs 31, 6, which says, Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. Or Proverbs 3, 27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do so. God calls that justice. He expects his people to uphold justice in all of its ways. Now, Mishpat does not only mean giving a person their due in a court of law and treating it like fair, but Mishpat also means giving a person their due when it comes to uh, their, their needs, if you will. And we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 3, how the priest, how Israel was responsible for giving the priest his due, his Mishpat. That means that the priest was allowed to pay part of the sacrifice for his own um, benefit so that he can be fed and ate. So that was called his mispot. They were giving the priest his due. That's Deuteronomy 18.3. So mispot also means giving a person their due, right? They were giving the priest his due by allowing him to share in the sacrifice that they would bring. He would take part of the, the meat. So that is mispot. It's one form of the Hebrew uh, word for justice, we spot. The other one that we looked at is tzedakah. That's the other word, tzedakah. Now this word tzedakah, in our English translation of the Old Testament, you will often find it translated as righteousness. Righteousness. That's what you will find in the Old Testament. You'll see it translated as righteousness. And this type of justice, as we discussed, it's more of your relational, communal, societal justice. It's more of that. It's more of the how I'm dealing with other people, how I'm living amongst other people. And we looked at some of the Tazaka guidelines or laws in Leviticus 19 when it comes to the gleaning. Remember, we talked about gleaning, how the Israelite who had a farm couldn't. Um, he couldn't pick up, if, if he was uh, harvesting his fruit, he couldn't pick up everything. And he had to leave part of his field open so that the poor and the needy and the orphan and the widow, that they would have their, that they would be fed. 
And so that was that was the, that was part of the tzaka, how God was calling Israel to be just and to care for those in that situation, to make sure that their needs were met, that there would be equity in Israel. So that was tzaka. Another way of kind of understanding tzaka or tzaka is tzaka like this: when when God created the world. Let, let me back up. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. So, Tazaka, another way that people understand Tazaka is, is this term called primary justice, or first order justice. And it's described like this. When God created the world, he created a world that is just, we would say, right? He created a world that would be totally just, where people would receive their due, God would receive his due, and God's due is that he would receive respect, glory, honor, and worship. And mankind would be given their due to their fellow men. They would not be murdering. They wouldn't be stealing from their brother or sister. They would be treating them right. That would be a just society. And that's how God created society to be a just society where everybody would be getting their due. God his due in worship and honor. And man, we'd be treating each other right. But we know with sin, justice was fallen or justice fell where man was no longer in right relationship with God. Man was no longer giving God his spot, giving God his due. Man was no longer in a right relationship with man living as they ought to. They weren't living the way that God had called man and man to live. They were not living the way that God, God called man and God to live. They were not living in the, in the organism or the way that God said this is what a just society looks like. So what does God do? He, again, he tries to correct this injustice by giving the law, by enacting laws in Israel. See, the, he enacts laws on how people ought to be treated, on how you ought to treat the poor, on how you ought to treat the widow and the orphan, or how your court systems ought to be. God goes to Israel and he enacts these laws. See, God chooses Israel to be this group who's going to be a light to the nation so that the world would see what a just society looks like. So that the world would see what it looks like to live in a right relationship with God. That is what Israel was supposed to do and be through the laws. But guess what? Romans 8 tells us that because of the weakness of our flesh, right, the law had no power. That's why Israel didn't shine like they were supposed to shine. That's why they weren't that beacon of light that they were supposed to be when God gave them the law. Why? Because the weakness of their flesh. So the law had no power. So now that means that you're going to need somebody else. Somebody else who that can come in and be the true light. Somebody else who can come in and restore Sadaka, who can restore justice, who can bring Shalom back into the world. And some of you are probably know where I'm going, who that person is, who's going to restore that tzedakah, who's going to restore that shalom and bring justice in the way that God created it back to the earth. And that person is Jesus, right? That is, he's, that's part of the justice that he brings. So to sum up, Mishpah is your rule of law, your, your court system, your, your, your black and white laws, giving people their just due. And Tanaka deals with your relational, your dealing in society, how you ought to live with people, living in a right relationship with God and living in a right relationship with men. Now, I want to just put this highlight out there. The two terms, Tanaka and Mishpah, 
With the Hebrew language, they're they're very it's a very nuanced language, meaning it's a lot of detail in it. And so you will find places in the scripture where Mishpat will be used like Sadaka, and Sadaka will be used like Mishpat. But generally, scholars on the Jewish side and on the Christian side, they put these two words in those two different camps that I described. The legalistic way and the Sadaka, meaning that you are living in a right relationship with God, living in a right relationship with man, that primary justice that God created the world. So that is a, a recap of the last one in a sense. That gives us our foundation for us to go into our main text today, which is Isaiah 59. So if you can turn me to Isaiah 59, that'll be our main text when we look at justice in the gospel. And here's the thing. In order for me, for us to get the, the whole gist of this, I have we have to read the whole chapter. We're not going to teach the whole chapter, but I just want to read it because the context of this is so important that I believe if you just kind of go into it, you will miss it. So I'm going to just read it. I'm really trying to fast, but I just we have to do it so we get context. So Isaiah 59, the word of God reads, the whole the Lord's hand is not short, that he cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken falsehood, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteously, no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They mischief, they conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their work. Their works are works of iniquity, and an act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed, shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace. There is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. Therefore, turning point here, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like a blind man. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins... Notice how the writer's now including himself in here. He says, for our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and result, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words, justice is turned back. And righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the streets, and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. 
Hello, here we go. The good part. Here we go. The beginning of the gospel. Good news in Isaiah. People call it the, what is it, the fourth gospel. He says, um, Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then, here he goes, the power and the glory of God. I love, look at this imagery. He says, then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness, his uh, his sedaka um, upheld him. He put on righteousness, sedaka, like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands, meaning to the farthest place of the earth, the small little islands, to the coastlands he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, meaning the whole globe, the whole world. Um, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. Look at 20. A redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgressions. And Jacob declares the Lord. I'll just throw in 21 for the sake of it, but that's just what we weren't going there. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord. From now and forevermore. Isaiah, that is some powerful stuff here that Isaiah. See, Isaiah in this text here, he's writing about the iniquities and the sin that is in Judah. And he's describing why this destruction has come. Why they have been overthrown by their enemies. Why things are not how they should be. So he's describing the reason. He's confessing to the Lord what's going on. And one of the, the most beautiful things that I, I like in this text, in, in verse 2 he says, when he asks the question, basically, you know, people say, where is God? Why is God not intervening? Isaiah saying the same thing. He says, behold, the Lord's hand is not short. They cannot save. He says in verse 2, but your iniquities have made the separation between you and your God. The reason I just want to highlight that point is because often in our society, we're wondering what's going on and we're always looking to natural means trying to figure out our solution. And we have to first step back and ask ourselves, is the reason that the things are in my life, the reason I'm not finding joy, is it because of sin in my life? Look what he says here. He says the reason that God is not acting, because they're wondering, why is God not moving? He's, he's saying God's hand, it's not like God's hand is not short, that he doesn't have the power to change things, but he said there's been a separation between you and your God because of your sin. And so he, he shows them that, no, maybe you have a sin problem, my brother or sister. Maybe it's not necessarily therapy that you need, but it's more confession that you need. See, he's showing that the issue that's happening here in Israel is a, a sin problem. Now, I don't want to just read this over again, but again, in 59 verses 1 through 5, it's just showing the, the sin that's happening in their world, what's happening in Israel, what's happening in Judah at this moment. As you keep going to 59, I want to bring you up to 6, where he says that their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their work. Their works are works of iniquity, and an act of violence is in their hand. Their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed innocent blood. There are thoughts, are thoughts of iniquity, devastation, and uh, 
devastation and destruction are in their highways today do not know the way of peace. What you see here, these indictments that the Lord has given to Judah or to Israel, while they are given to Judah or Israel, these indictments are for the whole world. What you gotta see. see, it's not as if just Judah or Israel had these unjust problems. It's not like it's Judah were the only ones going and searching after false gods and being unjust and not taking up the cause of the, the widow and the poor. No, these indictments, these charges, these things that Isaiah is bringing out, this is to the whole world. And, and as you see in this, in, this, in this text that we looked at, you can see that shalom is missing in this society. You can see that this society, that God's, uh, his tzedakah, his justice, his way of all things should be, that they're not happening here in this society. And that's why I say this is not just representative of Judah and their sin because of their iniquity, but this is representative of the whole world. The whole world is in this situation of Judah. The whole world is having this problem. There's no peace in all of society. Why? Because none of nobody's living how God intended for them to live. Nobody's living with Sadaka, living justly. They're living unjust. And because they're living unjust, we see the calamity that is happening upon Judah and Israel. So because they're living unjust, because they're not worshiping God, because they're running to idols, look what Isaiah says in verse 9. After he tells them that they do not know the way to peace, that there's no justice in their tracks, that their paths have been crooked, that whoever treads on them does not know peace, look what he says because of their iniquity. Now he's given the result of why they're in this circumstance. He says, therefore, justice, mispat, therefore mispat is far from us, and righteousness, sadaka, does not overtake us. See, notice that he's using justice, mispah and tzedakah, not in the sense that we think of it as injustice or making a judgment or as a law term. He's not using it as a punitive law term, but he's using justice in the sense of it being salvific. Meaning he's using justice in the sense of salvation and deliverance. He's saying because of our sin and iniquity, there is nobody there to come and deliver us. There's no one come to change the circumstance or the situation. See, justice takes on different variant uses. Sometimes it's used to describe a punitive, a retributive justice. But in this text here, he's using it in a salvific sense. And you can see the comparison of that down in verse 11, where he says that we all growl like bears and mold sadly like doves. He says, we hope for justice, but there's none. For salvation, but it's far from us. So he's linking salvation, deliverance, with justice here in this text. And not only in this text, but also when you go back to the beginning of Isaiah, if you go to Isaiah 1, 26 through 27, he says that Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. There again, he's using justice and mishpat, tzedakah, he's using it in the term of salvation, salvific, of God actually delivering them from something, God delivering them from their oppressor. Another place we see that, where we see justice, mispat, and tzedakah used in a salvific way is in Isaiah 46.3. Let me read to you what it says here. 
he tells the remnant, the remnant who are left from the exile, this. He says, I bring my righteousness to Daka. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. And I will grant salvation in Zion. Again, he's using justice in the form of deliverance. To the deliverance from sin and deliverance from oppression where God comes in and changes the situation of society, where God comes in, restores his shalom, and makes things how they ought to be. So here in Isaiah, when he says that in verse 9, he's talking about deliverance. See, Judah's sin was idolatry, idolatry and injustice. And that is why their kingdom was destroyed. That is why the gates of the walls were put down. That is why the people were dragged into exile. And so Isaiah is writing to these people saying, this is why this is happening. So they're, they're wondering, okay, when is this justice going to come? When is this oppression of the enemies going to be lifted up? When is God going to deliver us with justice and righteousness? See, they're looking for deliverance. And just like Judah, like I said, this is representative of humanity. See, because of our sin and rebellion against God, God has allowed a foreign kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, to have its go. And that kingdom of darkness we've seen is just as oppressive as the Assyrians were, just as oppressive as the Babylonians were to Judah. It is the same thing. The reason there's destruction all in our society, that is part of the hand of the kingdom of darkness. The reason we have murders and wars and senseless greed and corrupt sexuality, that is part of the hand of the kingdom of darkness. So they, just like us, are looking for God to come and deliver. Looking for God to bring this restorative justice to make things right, to make things how they ought to be. So Isaiah continues down here in verse after verse 9. He says, we hope for light. And behold, uh, it was darkness for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the walls by blind man. And he begins to just lay out how salvation is lacking. They're looking for this God to come and save. Our Lord, and then Isaiah in verse 12, next he as he's making this indictment on his charges, he begins to include himself in here. And he talks about how the transgressions of us, he applies his own sin to the situation. He's not just pointing the fingers and saying, no, it was my ancestors, no, it was Judah, no, it was them. But now Isaiah is including himself in the sin of the people. And as you keep going down in this text in verse 14, he says, I love the poetic language that Isaiah begins to use. He says that justice is turned back and righteousness stands apart, for truth has stumbled in the streets. There's no justice at all around us. The truth of God, he said, all of that has stumbled in the street where uprightness cannot even enter. He's talking about how bad this society is. 15, he says, yes, truth is lacking. And he says, he who turns aside from evil makes himself pray. Does that sound familiar to anybody? That should sound just like blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. What Isaiah is saying there in verse 15, that the ones who try to do justly, the ones who try to turn away from doing unjust, he says that they turn themselves into prey. 
thing that they just did ate up. So there was no justice in Judah. The people who were made in the image of God were not getting their just treatment. God was not getting his just due, his glory, his honor, his worship. That is what God calls an injustice. But then the gospel begins to show up in verse 16. Here comes the gospel. If, you, if you've read this text, you know the gospel now is beginning to come. I hope your understanding is beginning to rise because he says this in verse 16. He says he looks and he saw that there was no man, that there was no one. He said he was astonished that there was no one to intercede. No one to come in and change the situation. No one to come in to deliver us from the oppression of our evil. No one to come in to change the corrupt ways of society. There is no one to intercede. Then he brings us to the good news. We even find this good news first in Isaiah 53. Anybody remember Isaiah 53, the famous messianic text? In Isaiah 53, 12, the new portion, this is what the Lord says about Jesus, the Messiah, and what he's going to do. It says, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressor. Isaiah says there's no one to intercede, but now we see that God is sending himself to intercede. God is sending himself to change the situation. God is sending himself to bring in Sadaka to correct the injustice. 16, he says, there was no one to intercede, then his own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. So now God, you see, God is the one that changes it, he's saying. God is the one that's going to make things right in our society. It is not him. He said God is going to do it himself since there's nobody else. There's no one else who is able to change the injustice. There's no one able to bring in the shalom, to make things like they were. So this is now God himself is going to do it. And I love how the Lord begins to describe himself. Because here in verse 16 on down, he begins to describe himself like a superhero. Like a serial superhero dressing himself. You know, like Superman, right? He, he, he has his normal outfit on and he goes into that telephone booth and then he comes out, right, as Superman with that big S. He has a, a cape now and he has his boots. That is the same thing that God is describing himself when he comes down to save and redeem man with justice. Look what he says here. It says his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness, his sidaka upheld him. Look what he's going to put on. He puts on sidaka, righteousness, justice, like a breastplate and a helmet of um, and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he puts on garments of vengeance for clothing and wraps himself with zeal as a mantle. You see how God is now describing himself. God is preparing himself. He's putting on his clothing to go and redeem a fallen world. Fallen world. This is how he's describing himself. He says, according to their deeds, so he will repay. This is what the Lord is doing when he comes. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west. His glory in the rising of the sun. He will come like a rushing stream. The wind of the Lord drives 
20, a redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob. You know what the beautiful thing about verse 20? Verse 20 is the same verse that Paul quotes in Romans 11, 26 about Jesus coming to redeem Israel. It's the same thing. So this lets us know that that person who is dressing up like a superhero, this is a messianic text describing Jesus as he comes to earth, the things that Jesus is going to do. See, this is all about Christ being the redeemer, restoring God's mispah and his tadaka in society, destroying the enemies, God's enemies, which is our enemies, which you will see is the kingdom of darkness. But this text is about Jesus. Jesus is the one putting on justice like a clothing. Jesus is the one. And this text is important because this text here in Isaiah 59, as well as Isaiah 42, where the Messiah, the servant, is sent to bring forth justice to the nation, that he will establish justice in the earth. These texts are important because guess what? It informs our hermeneutics on the life of Jesus. Now, hermeneutics is just a fancy term to describe the process of biblical interpretation. And so what I mean by that is because of texts like Isaiah 42 that describes God's servant bringing justice to the nation and establishing God's justice on the earth, because of texts like Isaiah 59 describing the Lord wearing tzedakah and justice on himself, it means that when I go to the New Testament and I begin to read Jesus, I have to be looking for justice in all of his varied uses. That's what I mean. It informs our hermeneutics. So now when I read the New Testament and I look at Jesus, my antennas are going up as I'm looking for how does he satisfy justice? How does he bring justice? Why? Because that is what you will find when you study the Old Testament text. The Messiah, one of his major characteristics is he will bring and he will do justice. So this informs how we look at Jesus. We have to understand that when we go and look at Jesus, we have to look for all of the varied uses of justice. Whether it's the salvific type of justice that's used here in Isaiah 58 where God is destroying all of Judah's enemies and healing their land and bringing them back into a right relationship with God. Or if it's the punitive justice that Jesus goes on a cross and absorbs the wrath of God so that we can stand right before God. Both of those types of justice, the Mishpah type justice that deals with our sin and the Sadaka type justice that deals with our relationship with God and our relationship with others, both of those are found in Jesus Christ and in his cross. See, we often get just focused on the punitive aspect of God's justice, of him dying on the cross for our sins, but justice throughout the scripture has a punitive aspect and there is a restorative aspect of the cross of Christ. And that is the beauty of this text, my brothers and sisters. See, how do I put like this? The gospel of Jesus Christ is not simply about you and me and our personal salvation but it is also about God and his glory as he destroys his enemies and establishes his government on the earth, Isaiah 9, 7. See, here, I want to show you what, what I mean. Go with me to Zechariah, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 1, and you'll see what I mean. 
Go with me in Luke chapter 1, verse 67 to 74. In Zechariah's prophecy, so you get what I mean by that. Luke chapter 1, verse 67 to 74. But I want to highlight and show you how the gospel restores us with God. It deals with our sin. But the gospel is larger and that God is doing something even bigger and greater through the cross of Jesus. And that is he is destroying his enemies and establishing his government or his kingdom. And so, look at Luke chapter 1, verse 67 to 74. And this is Zacharias, this is John the Father, he's preaching or he's giving a prophecy about the Messiah or what the Messiah is going to do. Look here, he says this. He says, and his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Here it goes, the verse 71. Salvation from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us. So we say that this Messiah is going to bring salvation to our, from our enemies in the hand of all who hate us. This is the same salvation that Isaiah said was lacking in the streets. You remember back in Isaiah 59.9, he said that justice was far away from us, and righteousness was nowhere to be found. Remember that salvific sense of the term justice, where they were looking for God to come and change Israel, to restore things back, to destroy Israel's enemies. That same justice that was lacking is now being fulfilled here in the Messiah as he's born. Now that enemy who has destroyed, who has brought oppression to the uh, to Israel is now being dealt with. And see, what, I, what, what Zechariah is doing here in this text in 71, when he says salvation from our enemies from the hand of all who hate us, he's quoting Psalms 106.7. And in Psalms 106.7, the psalmist is, is describing God's deli God delivering his people from the oppressive Egyptian regime or from Pharaoh. See, what you will see as you study the Old Testament scripture is that there is a motif or theme to all scripture where God redeems his people from an oppressive enemy. That's a theme that you will see all throughout the Old Testament. You see it with Egypt, where God is promising to redeem his people from an oppressive en enemy. You see it in Isaiah and all of the Old Testament prophets, the minor and the major prophets, where God is promising to redeem his people from an oppressive enemy. Zechariah said, now that is happening. God is redeeming his people from that oppressive enemy that has been spoken of all throughout the Old Testament scripture. Now, if you are in the first century, the enemy that you would have in mind would be the Roman government, right? That is who the first century disciples, that's who they thought it was, the Roman government. That is why in Acts 1, disciples are asking Jesus, is now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They see that enemy as the Roman government. But Jesus had bigger fish to fry than the Roman government. 
It wasn't a Roman government that Jesus was looking to destroy, but Jesus had his eye on a bigger target. That target is the kingdom of darkness. That target is Satan's kingdom. That is the enemy that he is saving them from. That is the enemy that he is saving us from. That is the one of the hand who hates us. That is the one or the kingdom that Jesus is looking to destroy. That is the one he's looking to provide justice and deliver his people from. See, we find in the gospel's language like this to confirm this. It's Matthew 12, 22 to 29, when Jesus is healing a man that is demon-possessed, the kingdom of darkness, the Pharisees go and they accuse Jesus of doing it by Beelzebub. And, and in that text of scripture, Jesus does two things. One, he identifies that Satan has a kingdom. Satan has a kingdom. But two, in that text, he shows the kingdom of God's power to overcome the kingdom of darkness and to plunder his house. See, the battle truly is not against flesh and blood, but the battle is between these two kingdoms. It's a kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. So we find verses like John 12, 31, where, where Jesus tells his disciples, says that judgment has come upon this world and that the ruler of the world, Satan, is being cast out. See, this is a major spiritual battle that's happening. Jesus is coming to overthrow and overtake God's enemy, which is the kingdom of darkness. To destroy that kingdom, that oppressive kingdom that has had his hand in so many things of this fallen world. Jesus said, now Satan's time is up. He's casting out that kingdom. Now God is establishing his government, as Isaiah says in chapter 9, 7. We also see this language in Acts 10, 38, where Peter goes to Cornelius' house. And he begins to preach. And he tells Cornelius and the Gentiles that Jesus went about doing good, and guess what? Healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Again, that's that kingdom of darkness. That's the oppressor that Jesus is setting us free. See, my brothers and sisters, when the angels sang at the birth of Jesus, it was not just for personal sin and salvation, but it was that God's anointed king from the line of David is now born, the king who would destroy God's enemies, who would establish God's kingdom and provide redemption and restorative justice on the earth, the one who would bring shalom. That's the full aspect of the gospel. He's, he's bringing us reconciliation with God, but he's also dealing with God's enemy, the kingdom of God, and establishing his kingdom. This is why we look at the scriptures. At the beginning of the Gospels, we find John and Jesus saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This new kingdom is coming that's going to overthrow our enemies. Who is the enemy? The kingdom of darkness. God is now going to establish his kingdom. He's going to provide restorative justice. Shalom will be brought back. We will be restored to God. See, it's the kingdom of God. What does Mark tell us in Mark 1, 15? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What is the subject of the gospel in Mark 1, 15? It is the kingdom of God. That is what the first century Israelite is hearing. 
Their hand kept God's kingdom, the kingdom that had been prophesied to Isaiah, through Amos, through Jeremiah, that time where God has promised it to bring his ruler from the line of David to destroy our enemies, to restore us back into a right relationship with God. That kingdom and that king is now here. Amen. See, that's the gospel. That's the good news. That king has come. And that kingdom has now been inaugurated through Jesus. He's going to restore justice. Restore justice. So my brothers and sisters, this is why it's important that we temper our gospel presentations from this angry, cold God that is only looking to punish with this God who is sending his son to destroy God's enemies and our enemies and to release us from the oppressive regime of the kingdom of darkness. And not only that, his son is going to stand in our place and absorb the wrath of God so that we can now be reconciled to God. It's the full gospel. Yes, it's about me and you being reconciled, but it's about God establishing his kingdom to his glory. That God is correcting all the things that went bad in the fall. See, in, in the fall, God created the world to be just, but with sin, the world went bit. Now, with Jesus, he's reconciling that thing back. That the world may live in a place of shalom, the way that God had designed it to be. But that's the restorative justice aspect of the kingdom. My brothers and sisters, gospel does not end at the cross. Guess what? The gospel does not end at justification, but the gospel will accomplish it more. The cross proves that God is just in punishing sin, but it also restores us to God. It brings us back to God, the prize, to the glory of God. Our salvation is justification, sanctification, glorification. All of it. That's the objective. In the end, the cross points to this glorification where God and man are reunited, restored back into right relationship. That's the objective. That is what the cross is accomplishing. We see this in 1 Peter 3.18, which he say that Jesus, or Christ, died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. For what? The Greek henna means in order to, in order to bring us to God. Now he gives us what the gospel, what the cross is attempting or accomplishing. And it's not just deal with my sin, but God says, I'm bringing you to myself. That is the objective of the gospel. Jesus to bring us to God. See, the gospel is a picture of God's Retributive justice in punishing sin, but it's also a picture of God's restorative justice and overthrowing the oppressive kingdom of darkness, binding the strong man who has oppressed his people and redeeming and reconciling those people back to himself. And not only those people, but he is reconciling all things back to himself through the cross. So you see that the gospel. It's bigger than just you and me. But God has a bigger plan in mind. God's plan is to restore shalom, that primary restorative justice of how people ought to live with God and how people ought to live with man. Colossians 1.20, that God is reconciling all things 
to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So what you must understand that when Jesus died on the cross and it rose, there was a cosmic shift in the universe. A power was overthrown. God's kingdom inaugurated. It was not a normal day when Jesus rose. The world literally changed. There was a change in the power structure. Jesus overcame God's enemies. He overcame your enemies. Sin, the kingdom of darkness. He went and reconciled us, took us out of the oppression of the enemy, and restored us back to God. That's called restorative justice, when the victim and the offender are restored back to one another. That is what we see Jesus accomplishing here in the gospel. Was so big, so great. It's God being the soul to himself. God showing his niece pot in his daca and delivering oppressive people and bringing us to himself. Amen. Amen. So next week, I'm just going to show a matter of fact, I'm going to let just, I'm just going to show a short video that sums up what we kind of gone over today and the first session. Um, some of you know what, you guys all know the first chairs. Um, they do a yearly Bible study like we do. And in their like app or platform, anytime they go into like a book, let's say they, they, they have project, they have uh, partnered with the, the Gospel Project, that's what it's called, the Gospel Project. And so the Gospel Project, they produce these animated um, uh, lessons on books of the Bible on different things, and so this one we're going to look at is about five minutes. It describes justice, and it uses all the terms that we looked at today, so it's a good summary of what we've talked about these past two sessions. So um, go ahead, Holly. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mates. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families, and then in communities, and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. 
But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like, here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged, and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free. But he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. 
is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. So, that's just a good summary. Kind of, the Hebrew word. So, what we'll do next week is we'll look at It'll be more application or doing justice. And so we'll look at doing justice. We'll look at knowing God through justice. Um, Scott tells you, this is what it is to know me to do justice. And so just like you can know God through prayer or reading scripture, you can actually begin to know God and have a deeper relationship with God through doing justice. So we'll look at that. We'll look at um, some of the New Testament texts. We'll look at Paul. We'll look at James, um, Dorcas, her ministry in doing justice. Um, we will lightly, I was debating from the hit on this, we'll lightly address why you don't see the actual word justice in the New Testament. You see the other word, you see righteousness. Um, we'll explain why, looking at the Septuagint a little bit. A little bit. Um, I'm trying not to just go too nerdy on you guys, but um, yeah, it's, it's just a lot of good language stuff that really helps us to understand. So, um, We'll stop now, and like I said last time, we'll hold questions until uh, next week, unless um, you want to talk something that much. But that being said,